Section 12 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marion McIntyre. Section 12. At the Outposts. Memories of the Siege. The following notes were written from day to day while passing from one outpost to another. In offering them, I am merely detaching a leaf from my notebook before the siege of Paris has become a thing of the past. It is only a sketch, desultory and abrupt, dashed off upon my knee from time to time, and with no more smoothness than the splinter of a shell. But I give these notes just as they are, without altering one word, without even rereading them for myself, lest in so doing I might attempt to lend interest to them by adding fiction to fact, and so mar the whole. At La Courneuve, a morning in December. A white, wintry plain, rugged and chalky, across which every sound echoes. Along the frozen mud of the road, the infantry of the line are advancing pell-mell with the artillery. A slow and dreary march. There will be fighting soon. The men stumble again and again, walk with lowered heads, shivering with the cold, their guns strapped, their hands concealed within their blankets, as in a muff. From time to time is heard the cry of halt. The frightened horses neigh. The ammunition wagons rumble, and artillerymen raising themselves in the saddle, anxiously scan the great white wall of Bourget. Can you see them, ask the soldiers, striking their feet together to warm them? And then, forward march! And that human wave, driven back for a moment, moves onward in silence, never quickening its pace. On the horizon, in front of the fort of Aubervilliers, and sharply outlined against the cold sky in which the sun is rising like a leaden disk, a little group is seen. It is the governor and his staff. Against the gray sky they stand in strong relief, like Japanese figures upon a background of mother-of-pearl. In nearer view, stationed along the road like a flock of crows, black-robed figures are seen, ministering brothers of charity ready for duty at the ambulances. Standing there, their hands crossed beneath their capes as they watch the long line moving on to become food for the cannon, devotion, humility, and sorrow speak from their eyes. Same day. Villages deserted. Abandoned houses wide open. Roofs demolished. Windows with their weatherboards gone staring at you like the eyes of a corpse. Now and then, in one of these ruins where every sound reverberates, something is heard stirring, the sound of footsteps, perhaps, or a door rattling on its hinges. And after you have passed, a soldier of the line appears on the threshold, hollow-eyed, suspicious, some marauder, perhaps, who is making a search, or some deserter seeking a hiding place. Upon entering one of these country houses, towards noon it appears to be empty and bare. A vulture's claws could not scrape it cleaner.
On the lower floor, the big kitchen, windowless, doorless, opens upon the backyard, and at the end of the yard is a green hedge. Behind the hedge, the open country is seen. At one end, there is a little spiral stairway of stone. I seat myself upon one of its steps and remain there for some time. How good a gift, this sunshine, this deep calm everywhere. Two or three big flies of last summer, revived by the sunlight, buzz about the rafters of the ceiling. At the fireplace, a few traces of a fire remain, and the hearthstone is reddened with congealed blood. This blood-stained hearth, those cinders still warm, tell the mournful story of the preceding night. Along the Marne, December 3, went out through the Porte de Montreuil. A heavy sky, piercing wind, fog everywhere. No one to be seen in Montreuil. Doors and windows closed. Behind their enclosure, a flock of geese were cackling. Plainly, the master himself is still here, but in hiding. A little further on, a cabaret open. It is warm within, and there is a roaring fire. Three provincials, mobiles, it appears, are seated as close to it as possible, breakfasting. They speak not a word. Their eyes are swollen, their faces inflamed. They rest their elbows upon the table, and the poor moblots almost fall asleep as they eat. Left Montreuil and crossed the Bois de Vincennes, blue with the dense smoke of bivouac fires. Ducrot's army is there. The men are cutting trees to warm themselves. It is a shame to see poplars and birches and young ash trees flying into the air, root and all, and trailing their delicate golden foliage along the road. At Nogent, more soldiers, artillerymen in great cloaks, Norman mobiles, with plump bodies, rounded as apples, little zouave, well muffled, but agile enough, soldiers of the line, bent almost double, their blue handkerchiefs tied about their ears, beneath their kepis. Loungers swarm the streets. People jostle each other at the doorways of the two grocery shops still open. One is reminded of some tiny Algerian village. At last, the open country. A long, deserted road descending towards the Marne. A beautiful sky, pearly in tint, trees whose bare boughs shiver in the mist. Below, the great viaduct of the railway, presenting a sinister appearance, like a huge jaw in which a tooth is gone here and there, for the arches of the viaduct have been destroyed in places. Passing through Le Perrault, ruined gardens everywhere, houses devastated and dreary. In one of those tiny villas bordering the roadside, I saw behind the gate three great white chrysanthemums, full-blown, which had escaped the general massacre. I pushed open the gate and entered, but they were so beautiful that I could not bear to pluck them took a crossroad and descended towards the mound. When I reached the riverside, the sun came out and shone in full glory upon the river. It was a lovely sight. 
just across the river was Petit Brie, where there had been so much fighting the day before. On the hillside, surrounded by vineyards, its little white houses nestle peacefully, row upon row. Near me on the river, a boat among the reeds. A group of men are talking upon the bank while they watch the opposite slope. They are scouts, who are going to Petit Brie to discover whether the Saxons have returned. I cross with them. As we are rowed over the stream, one of the scouts, sitting behind me, says to me in a low voice, If you wish, Chaspeau, the mairie is full of them. They have left a colonel of the line there, too, a big, fair-haired fellow, with a skin as white as a woman's, and he had on yellow boots that were quite new. The boots of the dead soldier had evidently impressed him more than anything else. He was constantly referring to them. Dieu, but that was a fine pair of boots, and his eyes sparkled as he spoke. As we entered Petit Brie, a sailor, shod with Spanish sandals and carrying four or five chassepots, came rolling out of an alley and approached us on the run. Keep your eyes open, there are Prussians, he said. We crouched behind a little wall and watched. Above us, and higher than the vineyards themselves, a horseman was seen, quite a melodramatic figure outlined against the horizon. He was leaning forward in the saddle, his helmet upon his head, his carbine in his hand. Then other horsemen appeared, and foot soldiers crouched in various places among the vines. One of them, quite near us, had taken position behind a tree and never once moved. He was a huge fellow in a long brown coat, and a colored handkerchief was tied about his head. From the spot where we stood, he would have made a splendid target, but what good would that have done? The scouts knew what they were about, and so we hastily entered the boat. The boatmen began to swear. We recrossed the Marne without mishap, but scarcely had we landed when we heard muffled voices calling from the opposite bank. Hello! Hello there! The boat! It was my acquaintance who had taken such a fancy to the boots a while before. With three or four of his companions, he had attempted to reach the mairie, and was obliged to return precipitately. Unfortunately, there was no one to return for him and his companions. Our boatmen had disappeared. I do not know how to row, says to me, piteously enough, the sergeant of the scouts, who was crouching at my side in a hole at the water's edge. All this time the others are growing impatient. Come, come, they call. Someone must get them. Not an agreeable task. The mound is rough and swollen. I pull across with all my might, and every moment I feel, back of me, that Saxon above watching me, motionless from behind his tree. In boarding the boat, one of the scouts jumps in so hastily that it is filled with water. It becomes impossible to take on all the men without running the risk of sinking the boat. The bravest one remains to wait upon the bank. He is a corporal of the franc tireur a handsome boy in blue. A little bird worked upon the front of his cap. I would have returned for him gladly, but just then a fusillade from one bank to another began. He waited a few moments without a word. 
Then he took himself off towards Champigny, keeping close to the walls. I do not know what became of him. Same day. It is the same with things as with persons. A union of the grotesque with the dramatic adds peculiar intensity to the thrill of horror we experience. To see great suffering stamped upon a face whose outline at other times would cause a smile, does not this move you more profoundly than it would to read the same story elsewhere? Picture to yourself a bourgeois of Daumier's in the last agonies of death, or weeping his heart out beside the dead body of a son brought home to him slain. Is there not peculiar poignancy in that anguish? Ah, well, to look at all those bourgeois villas along the mound, toy gingerbread cottages, gaudy caricatures in rose pink, apple green, canary yellow, and medieval turrets roofed with zinc, kiosks of imitation brick, rococo gardens, in the center of each a white metal ball. When I see them now, blackened with the smoke of battle, their roofs splintered with shells, their weather vanes broken, their walls dented, blood and straw everywhere, there is something horrible in the sight. The house which I entered was a fair type of the mall. I ascended to the first story and entered the little parlor done in red and gold. The paper hangers had not finished their work upon it. Rolls of paper and gilded moldings were lying about, but there was not a trace of furniture. Bits of broken bottles were scattered over the floor, and in a corner upon a straw mattress a man was sleeping in his blouse. Moreover, an indescribable odor of wine, powder, candles, and musty straw which of these the strongest it would be hard to say. To warm myself, I tossed the leg of a center table into the fireplace. Such an idiotic fireplace, stuccoed in pink and resembling some marvel of the confectioner's art. While I look at it, for a moment it seems to me that I am merely spending a Sunday afternoon in the country, in some prosperous little bourgeois establishment. Is not someone playing backgammon behind me there in the parlor? No, those are riflemen, loading and discharging their chassepots. Except for the frequent reports, one might mistake the sound for the tossing of dice. Upon each report there is a reply from the opposite bank. The sound borne across the water ricochets back and forth and echoes ceaselessly among the hills. Through the loopholes in the parlor, the gleam of the mound may be seen, its bank bathed in sunlight, and between the poles of the vineyards, like great greyhounds, move the Prussians. Souvenir of Fort Montrouge High above, upon the bastion of the fort, in the embrasure formed by sandbags, long marine guns raise themselves proudly, almost erect, in their carriages, pointing towards Chatillon. Thus aimed, with their mouths in the air, their handles protruding like ears on each side, they make one think of immense hunting dogs, baying at the moon, bellowing in the face of death. A little lower, upon a terre plain, the sailors are amusing themselves as if aboard ship, 
by making an English garden in miniature. There is a bench, an arbor, lawns and rockeries, and even a banana tree, not a very tall one to be sure, scarcely higher than a hyacinth, but all the same it is a welcome sight, and its small green tuft, seen in the midst of sandbags and piles of shells, refreshes the eye. Oh, that little garden at Fort Montrouge! Would I might see it again, surrounded by a paling, and in that garden a memorial stone, on which were inscribed the names of Carvet, Desprez, Sassé, and all those brave sailors who fell at their post of honor on yonder bastion. At La Fouilleuse, the morning of the 20th of January, a pleasant morning, mild and cloudy, great stretches of plowland, undulating at a distance like the sea. On the left, high sand hills, which serve as a buttress for Mont Valerien. On the right, Gibbet Mill, a little stone mill, its sails broken and a battery upon its platform. Walked for a quarter of an hour beside the long trench leading to the mill. Over it rested a light veil, like a river mist. It was smoke from the bivouac fires. Soldiers were squatting about, making coffee. The smoke of the green wood they were inhaling blinded and choked them. From one end to the other of the trench, a prolonged cough was heard. La Fouilleuse, a farm bordered by small timber. Arrived there just in time to see the last of our lines beating a retreat. It was the 3rd Regiment of Paris Mobiles. It marched in good order, none missing, a commander at its head. After the incomprehensible confusion and disorder I had seen since yesterday evening, this sight reassured me a little. After the men came two horsemen, a general and his aide-de-camp. They were quite near me as they passed. The horses were trotting leisurely, the two men were talking to each other and loudly enough to be heard. The aide-de-camp said in a fresh young voice, a trifle obsequious, Yes, General. Oh, no, General. Certainly, my General. And the General, in mild but heartbroken tones, What? He is slain? Oh, the poor boy! The poor boy! Then the voices were silent, and nothing was heard but the tramping of horses in the soft earth. For a moment I remained there alone, looking at that vast, melancholy landscape, one was reminded somewhat of the plains of Chelif, or of Mitidja. Lines of ambulance men in grey blouses were climbing a hollowed road. Seeing their white banner with its red cross, one might have believed he was in Palestine at the time of the Crusades. End of section 12. Recording by Linda Johnson.